Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm 69. This psalm is sort of the archetypal imprecatory psalm. It is the imprecatory psalm quoted most frequently in the New Testament. Seven different verses of this psalm are cited at some point in the New Testament. Psalm 69 is second only to Psalm 22 as the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, though depending on who you actually consult, uh, some scholars argue that it is the most frequently cited psalm in the New Testament. I, I suppose it depends on exactly how you calculate citations. But whether first or second, everyone agrees that it is massively important. Charles Hodge said, for example, this psalm is so frequently quoted and applied to Christ in the New Testament that it must be considered as directly prophetical. Jesus certainly treated it as such. In fact, this psalm was on the lips of Christ moments before he gave up his spirit on the cross. For that reason alone, it demands our careful attention. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning with the ascription and continuing to verse 1. To the choir master, according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am Weary with my crying out, my throat is parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for God. Now, while I agree with Hodge that this psalm must be considered directly prophetical, it of course comes out of an actual historical situation in the life of King David, which I think is also important for us to try and understand. It was written during a time of severe personal distress. The words in this psalm incline us to think that the enemies referred to were personal as opposed to military. In addition, it seems that David's troubles here are not related to the matter with Bathsheba. David says that these people hated him without cause. Well, to state the obvious, that wasn't always the case with King David. Sometimes people hated him and opposed him with cause, but not here. Given the mention of financial matters, and his statement that zeal for the house of the Lord is consuming him, scholars often assume that this psalm was written at a time when people within Israel, within the government even, were opposing David because of his financial commitment to the building of the temple. The temple, of course, was built by Solomon, but the materials were largely gathered and paid for by David. And that is the immediate issue, it seems, if we are reading this psalm correctly. David has prioritized the building of the temple to the point that it has made him powerful political enemies. Verse 4, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? J. Alec Machir says of this verse, The implication is of a series of 
charges of malpractice, to which David found the best solution was to make repayments while claiming innocence. Verse 5, O God, you know my folly, the wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Again, just notice here that David is not claiming to be sinless. He's just saying that these particular accusations are not true. He hasn't stolen any money. In fact, he's been investing personally in the project. And he is doing what is right, what the Lord has told him to do. And yet, even still, there are many adversaries. Jesus quotes these words in that sense in John 15, 23 to 25. Note this well. Being innocent, being invested, and being attentive to the will of God does not shield you from opposition, even from God's people. Note that. Mark it down. Consider that part of the cost of doing business. Verse 6. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Here, David says that it is for the Lord's sake that he is being opposed. David is trying to do something for God that is alienating him from even those people who had previously been closest to him. In verse 9, we begin to get a picture of what David is trying to do. He says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. David is consumed with the house of the Lord. He wakes up thinking about it. He goes to bed thinking about it. He is over the top, 100%, all in, committed to the project. David has become a religious extremist, and simultaneously, he's become an object of ridicule. And this reminds us, of course, of the story of the woman, we presume Mary, who broke the flask of ointment, which could have been sold for 300 denarii, and poured it out wholesale over the head of Jesus Christ. And every man in the room was offended, even the disciples, and particularly Judas. Of course, not Jesus. But those others who were offended thought her display immoderate, showy, and excessive, and they scolded her. Do you remember that? Her commitment to the body of Christ, the new temple, according to John 2, 22, was offensive and evoked remarkable hostility from a group of people who were nominally, or at least professedly, on the Lord's side. James Edwards says marvelously here, the world has never had a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much wealth or power or sex or influence, but it has a problem with too much religion. That is evident here, closed quote. Mary experienced that, David experienced that, and Jesus experienced that too. If you care too much, if you are too invested, then you will attract the ire and hostility of the quasi-religious crowd. The ones who are often, sadly, in control of the church. Old Testament and new, that's an occupational hazard.
In verses 13 to 21, David does what every troubled soul ought to do. He turns his sorrows into prayers. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Verse 21 is, of course, one of the verses from this psalm that was in the mind of Christ as he hung upon the cross. Jesus intentionally identified with this prayer and wanted that to be obvious to the onlookers as well as to all who would follow. John 19, 28, 30 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in brackets, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You seeing that? One of the last things Jesus did on this earth was to visibly and obviously identify with this prayer of David in Psalm 69. As if to say, like David, I know what it is to be 100% committed to the glory of God and the forgiveness of his people. Just like people thought David was too invested, just, just like some thought he was willing to pay too high a price, just like people opposed David, who ought to have been his biggest helpers and supporters, so too I have been opposed in my investment, and so too I have been abandoned in my work. That's a remarkable tribute to and use of this Psalm of David. Following that, we have several verses of imprecatory content. Imprecatory means, of course, to ask for judgment from God upon your enemies or accusers. These are the verses that tend to cause contemporary Christians great distress. Verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents for they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Now, as I mentioned, many Christians struggle with these verses. After all, didn't Jesus say that we were to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Doesn't David fall rather short of that requirement in these verses? Well, let's think about that. First of all, let's notice that David is praying here, not plotting. He is not 
planning to take vengeance on his enemies, he is leaving all in the hands of God. That isn't any different than what the Apostle Paul tells believers to do in Romans 12, 19, where he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, the reason Christians are able to walk away from offense is not because they don't care about justice. It's because they know that in the end, all things will be weighed and God will do that which is right. Therefore, they can get on with the business at hand. Nowhere does the Bible tell believers to be indifferent towards issues of right and wrong, to be indifferent to injury or insult or slander. No, it it just says to leave those things to the wrath of God. And of course, if God were planning on just wiping all of the way, all of that away, it wouldn't say leave it to the wrath of God. And by the way, you'd be wrong to do so. But the Bible doesn't say that God's just going to wipe it all away or not care. It's either it's going to be dealt with one way or the other. It's going to be dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Or it's going to be dealt with in the body of those who are persistent in their offense against God and their fellow man, one way or the other. God will be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So David isn't doing anything here that New Testament believers are forbidden to do. He is taking his case to the Lord and he is asking for justice to be done. Now, I do think there's something else going on here. You you remember at the start of the episode, I quoted Charles Hodge as saying, this psalm is so frequently quoted and applied to Christ in the New Testament that it must be considered as directly prophetical. I think that is true. David is speaking in the spirit here, words and sentiments that ultimately align with the purpose and authority of Christ. J. Alec Machir says the same thing. He says, David, in his imprecations, is foreshadowing the wrath of the Lamb, as per Revelation 6.16, while giving expression to the righteous judgment of God. So David is speaking here prophetically as a type of Christ. I think that is well and usefully said. Listen, friends, let's be very clear. If people oppose Jesus the way they opposed David, if they reject and find distasteful his over-the-top extravagant investment in the reconciliation of human beings and, and, and the ultimate glorification of God and their praise and gratitude, if that all seems too much for them, if that all seems too explicit, too disrupting to their other concerns, then don't they deserve the wrath and judgment of God? If they oppose Christ, won't they face wrath, censure, judgment, and condemnation? Shouldn't they? After all, didn't they owe God perfect allegiance in the first place? Having rebelled against him, didn't they put their own souls at risk, rejecting the mercy of the Lord in the atoning work of Christ? Haven't they summoned the wrath of God? Isn't David just praying for what God himself has said? that he will do? That at the end of all things, he will separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the penitent from the persistent? Isn't this just praying for that? Isn't this psalm about agreeing ultimately with the judgment of God, agreeing that he has a right to the worship of all people, agreeing that he has done everything necessary for the reconciliation of all rebels, agreeing that he has been perfectly and quite unexpectedly patient? patient beyond anything that we could ever have hoped for or imagined. Isn't this psalm about expressing our agreement 
with those realities? John Piper says here, there is a divine judgment coming. And at that day, Christians will approve what God does. That is what David's imprecations make plain. That is what we should think and feel. So this psalm, if it sticks in your craw, perhaps reveals a disorder in your affections. David was on God's side. It was the glory of God that he was chiefly concerned with, and therefore he suffered. The same thing in an even greater sense could be said about Christ. What will be said about you? What will be said about me? Whose side are we on? Whose glory are we chiefly in pursuit of? That is one of the difficult questions posed by the text. Verse 29. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. David will praise, serve, and sacrifice no matter the resistance, no matter the mockery no matter the cost. And so will and so did David's greater son. Thanks be to God. Verse 34, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. That the verses of this psalm were so often in the mind and on the lips of Jesus, ought to give us pause in our consideration of them. We often have a far too narrow vision of Jesus that is largely disconnected from the actual testimony of the scriptures. These psalms, therefore, ought to be very helpful. As Gordon Wenham says here, these psalms can serve to wake us up from our structural amnesia about God. J. Alec Machir is on much the same page. He writes this in concluding reflection on Psalm 69. He says, Our only escape from the Son of Man, our judge, is to flee to the Son of Man, our Savior. He who said, Depart from me, you cursed, also said, Come, you who are blessed of my Father. The awesome throne of his glory is also the throne of his grace. That is a well-rounded perspective. That is a view of Christ that emerges from the things Jesus said, the prayers Jesus prayed, and the scriptures that he fulfilled. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit 
and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 